Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. Hey, hey, welcome to the men's room. I'm your host, Nadia Michelle, and I'm so glad you're here. Today is really good. That's because my guest is one of those exceptional people who make it their mission to try to make the world a better place. You've probably seen him on the news because he's built his career speaking out for justice and equality in the public eye. And I feel so honored that he took the time to have this conversation with me. So it's an especially fun show today, but there are many more to come. And if you don't want to miss out, be sure to subscribe to The Men's Room. He's known for his no-nonsense reporting on the Arab world, including at Al Jazeera English, HuffPost Live, and for Vice on HBO. In 2015, he was featured on the Arabian business power list of the planet's 100 most influential young Arabs. And before that, in 2012, he was featured on Forbes' 30 under 30 list of young disruptors, innovators, and media entrepreneurs impatient to change the world. Joining us from Toronto, Canada, please welcome Emmy-nominated journalist, the very handsome Ahmed Shihab al-Din. Well, hi, Ahmed. Hi. It's such a pleasure to have you. And first, I want to tell you, I actually yeah. studied journalism in college with the hopes of doing exactly the kinds of things that you do, um, you know, covering things that are so important. I got a little sidetracked and ended up uh, covering things that are less important to have to do more with lifestyle and stuff. But I, I really love what you do and I have total respect for what you do. I appreciate that. Well, I'll just say, if I may, um, depending on how we categorize lifestyle, I think everything's important and everything connects. So for as much as I've covered, you know, social justice and human rights and people tell me all the time, I wish I had, you know, a career where I could, you know, talk about things that matter, like they're either, you know, bankers or what, what have you. But I think everything connects. And, you know, in this modern day, we all have a platform. And so I appreciate what you said, but um, uh, I think we all have something to contribute. Well, that's a, a very interesting perspective, actually. Just so people understand what you're about, let me ask you, why did you become a journalist in the first place? That's a great question. You know, like many of us, when I was a kid, I used to always ask why. I was just very curious. And my dad's a nuclear physicist, my mom's an artist, so I could ask them about very different things and they would, you know, answer me. And <laughs> I think what happened is I just was incessantly curious. And once upon a time in, I think it was 1990, we were living in Kuwait uh, and we would travel every summer to California to spend the summer there. And we just so happened to get on a plane to spend the summer in California. And by the time we landed, you know, 16 hours later, Saddam Hussein had invaded Ku Kuwait. And we landed and, you know, it was all in, you know, every TV in the airport had the war. It was the first televised war, of course, the first Gulf War. And long story short, that summer, I remember, you know, of course, our family was glued to the TV because we were worried about what was happening. And And I remember being seven years old and, you know, people coming to interview my parents because, of course, they were essentially refugees at this point, so to speak, you know, you know, forced out of Kuwait, unable to go back. And um, I remember a woman asking me about my grandmother with a microphone. And I was like looking at this woman at the age of seven. And I was like, why does she care about my grandmother? Like, you know, why is she here asking us these questions? Like, why is she in our home? And I don't know if this is a story I tell or if it's the truth, but that was a very formative experience in terms of, you know, empathy and 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 um, 
kind of what the purpose is of journalism, which is, you know, to to inform and to educate and to, you know, to, um, I don't know, I, I, it's a really, it's a, it's a big question. And I don't know exactly why I went into journalism. I. It sounds like that was a very uh, impressive moment. That's funny how sometimes when you're young, it's, you know, that one moment that really shapes what you aspire to for whatever reasons. Yeah, I think also, quite frankly, I love to write. Uh, I just love writing as a kid, and I I love storytelling. You know, I know this is Hakawati, so I I loved the the kind of ritual of storytelling, and I think, you know, I I, I applied to journalism school kind of after undergrad, not knowing you know, why or what, or, you know, when you're that young, you don't really know exactly what you want to do. And I got into Columbia and I, I guess one thing led to another. When I was in Boston University, just quickly, I know that now I'm digressing. I was walking home one day in the cold and I had been studying advertising because my mom had been in advertising and I thought, you know, I could do that. That sounds cool. I think my mom's you know, uh, career was awesome. So, and my professor told me, he kept me after class one day. He said, Ahmed, I have something uh, to tell you. I said, what? He said, you're very talented. You're very smart. You're very inquisitive, but you suck at advertising. You're horrible. And I remember walking home and being devastated, you know, at that age, oh, I thought I was going to be in advertising. And I remember seeing a flyer on the window of the Daily Free Press, which was the student newspaper in Boston University. And I walked in, I applied for a job, got a job, and then from there on, I just got addicted to, um, you know, reporting and, and going places and asking questions and thinking about what was said and trying to convey that to the world. I know it's it sounds kind of random, but yeah. Yeah, and then the rest is history. From the moment you kind of uh, <laughs> set foot in that world, you kind of were like an overnight success, if I might say, right? Uh, not overnight, but I think I was always pushing against certain kind of conventional uh, ideals in journalism. You know, I happen, I think timing, timing is everything in life, right? And I happened to be at Columbia at a time when the news industry was really changing and transforming around social media and, you know, digital media and publishing. And I was kind of a geeky kid. I, I you know, I was more into like, kind of action scripting and interactive kind of maps and all that kind of stuff and what a computer can do. And so, yeah, I think I was in the right place at the right time. And, you know, they were trying to teach us rightfully, perhaps at Columbia about objectivity and the view from nowhere, which used to be very uh, important in, in journalism back when there were kind of authoritative voices that decided, you know, what was news and what was information that was important. And I remember from an early age really pushing back at Columbia against this idea of objectivity, which I think is really just a guise, you know, this idea that uh, journalists should not allow any of their emotions or humanity to infiltrate into their work as if that was even possible. So yeah, right. I don't know, not an overnight success, but I was definitely, um, I was definitely fortunate and um, persistent. That's really interesting because you've covered uh, you've covered the Middle East, um, and it's such a hot topic. And you yeah. know, critics always accuse you know certain networks and certain countries of covering issues in one way and conflicts in another. You know, from their own perspective, but that's just the way it is, right? Because it's all a matter of perspective. For you know, uh, one country maybe one side is to blame, and then you know. Yeah. For the victim, it's probably the other way around. So um, 
Yeah, and I think that's what people really uh, connected with in, in terms of what you, the way you reported uh, news when you were in the region. Of course, you're not in the region anymore. You're you're in no. New, you're living in New York. Yes, but I but I spend a lot of time in the region. Um, I, I it's funny. I'm about to give a speech tomorrow to about 400 young Arabs here in Toronto, and it's called Yalla, Let's Talk uh, the conference. And I mention this just because. I'm speaking about something that I've never really spoken about publicly, and it's about how our attachment to identity causes a lot of our suffering. And it speaks to exactly what you're talking about, this idea that perception really does dictate reality, especially in this kind of, whether we want to call it a post-truth world or, I don't know, you know, this digital dystopia that we live in. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess um, I feel very connected to the Arab world is the point, despite not living there permanently. And, and, and the beginning of my speech, for what it's worth, is about how uh, even though I live in the West and I dress Western, and I'm, I'm not going to rap the lyrics of the speech, I'm trying to do a little rap in the speech, but the point is I talk about how I somehow find release where there is no peace, uh, referring to the Middle East. And so, you know, even though I don't live there, it, it very much still feels like home and, and kind of where I belong, at least in some regards. Mm. So you're gonna you're gonna actually rap? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna rap. Let's just say um, I've spent a lot of time this year exploring new ways of storytelling. I think you know back to our earlier point. There are so many different ways to tell a story. Uh, dancers tell stories. Artists, musicians, um, you know. And and I think after spending more than a decade kind of telling stories in the context uh, of journalism. I'm really exploring kind of performance. And, you know, since I was a little kid, I used to put on little performances every Friday when we'd go to our grandparents' house for lunch. And there's so many different ways to reach people. And, and, and my real purpose in storytelling is to shift people's perceptions away from kind of the dogma and the divisions that, that separate us, uh, which, which the media unfortunately focuses on, and to focus on kind of the human condition and, and the shared things that, that we all have in common. That's so interesting, you know, because you're known as a journalist, but are yeah. you feeling like there's just too much media, the media is doing, you know, the same thing, we hear the same things over and over, mm -hmm. and, and people mm -hmm. are kind of becoming numb to it. So you make a good point. Is there a better way to kind of uh, shape the way people think at, at things or about things or view uh, certain issues? And actually, like, for example, I wanted to bring this up. The, there's the coronavirus uh, that's happening in yeah. China, for example. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that that's an example of the media kind of, um, uh, how can I put it? Like taking a story <laughs> and um, milking it for all it's worth because they, it's, it has this fear that's attached to it. And, and they know the audience yep. will, will, you know, be glued to their you know, wherever they're listening to find out, you know, what's who else, yeah. you know, got the virus. And is that an example of what you're talking about? You're 100% on point. Um, I think I grew very disillusioned with the limitations of journalism, especially today. And I think the coronavirus is a good example, right? I mean, I think the world is definitely going through two pandemics caused by the coronavirus. You know, the first is the infection itself. And the second is kind of the panic and the hysteria and all the associated racism and xenophobia that's really been very explosive. Uh, uh, you know, I was just in a coffee shop the week after the, the news started, you know, covering this virus. And I remember a woman walked in and there was, uh, she was with her daughter and there was an 
Asian woman who was, you know, ordering. And I think she was even Korean. I don't think she was Chinese. But the point is, you know, I watched as this mother, understandably on some levels, but also offensively and problematically, pulled her daughter away and, and very publicly was like, don't touch, don't touch that woman, you know, uh, move away because the woman was touching the glass. Uh, because and, she was Asian, basically. Yeah, she was just Asian. And, you know, I, I just wonder which is more threatening to the world. You know, is it is it the virus itself or is it the hysteria that's being caused? You know, masks are selling out, even though masks aren't really effective uh, in terms of protecting against the virus. Oh, that's and, crazy. You know, school, schools and public places are being abandoned kind of when a, when a Chinese or Asian person walks in. And, you know, there's even countries that are kind of going against the, you know, the WHO guidance of, you know, not banning foreigners arriving from China, you know, uh, that show, you know, science shows that that these kinds of steps are ineffective in preventing the spread of any respiratory virus. And, you know, in Italy, uh, across Europe, all over the world, there's incidents of assault, of, of, of insults and boycotting of businesses. And, and this is racism, right? And it's, it's driven by fear, to use the word that you used in the question. And, you know, I think... I think the biggest beneficiaries, to your point, are probably a lot of the peddlers of fake news and kind of the racist memes and the conspiracy theories around the virus that are spreading online uh, kind of faster than the disease itself is spreading or the virus itself is spreading. And, you know, the kind of tech giants who who give these people a platform and the advertisers then who, who piggyback off those profits. Um, you know, I think the winners are not just the, the pharmaceutical companies uh, kind of profiting off of the hysteria. You know, their stock prices are surging in, in anticipation of how we're going to test and treat the virus. But, you know, even even the Trump administration has said they see a positive in, in the fact that the coronavirus is existing because, uh, you know, the, the, the Commerce Secretary in the U.S. was speculating that a pandemic would drive a return of jobs to North America. And so, you know, I think it's too early to really know what's going on. But if you put things into context, uh, the fatality rate of coronavirus right now, I think, is around 2 or 2.5 percent. SARS back in 2003 was 10 percent. Uh, the Middle East respiratory syndrome uh, was 30 percent. Um, and if you think about it, compared to the flu, which kills around 400,000 people every year, you know, we we don't talk about the flu in the same terms, you know, uh, and unlike the coronavirus, of course, there's a vaccine for the flu. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm not trying to downplay the virus. Um, it has killed 1,800 people or however many. It's, it's, you know, a little bit more than that now. Um, it's in two dozen countries. But almost 99% of the deaths and the infections are in China. And, you know, so I think we just... Other than the fact that the incubation period, uh, you know, which is the time from being infected to showing systems, uh, symptoms is, is kind of long, 14 days, and that is a threat, and that allows people who are infected to kind of travel widely before showing symptoms. I think, yeah, it's a lot of, uh, con it's a product of what we're witnessing is a product of how news and information and misinformation travels faster than even a supposedly deadly virus. Yeah, and so many people are making money off of this. It's kind of like uh, during wars, mm -hmm. um, you know, certain countries like to go to war sometimes because it kind of stimulates the economy. It's almost a similar thing. And so if you think about that, and I know, you know, you just mentioned conspiracy theories, but in your personal opinion, mm -hmm. 
Is there a mm-hmm. chance that this virus was created in a lab and unleashed onto the population, um, you know, to, uh, you know, kickstart, you know, some great business opportunities and also to quell the protests in Hong Kong? A lot of people have been saying that. Uh, what what are yeah. your thoughts on that? <laughs> You're setting me up to be a conspiracy theorist. I think it's a good question in the sense that um, anything is possible. And I think we've seen crazier things happen and kind of more nefarious things happen. And and uh, I'm not going to kind of peddle that and, and say that it's probable, it is possible. But what I will say is that panic and fear is always profitable for someone. Uh, if you look back in the 70s, I think in 1976, the main kind of beneficiaries um, of the swine flu hysteria were the drug companies uh, that were kind of you know pushing untested vaccines. And, you know, back then, a lot of people suggested maybe the same thing, you know, had happened in terms of like it being somewhat intentional. But And they're the ones that would be able to produce the virus in the first place, right? Because they have all those labs and they're always funding research. Yeah, I mean... Again, I don't know. I don't want to push a conspiracy theories, but I do think we live in a time when anything is possible and, and people people have proven themselves to care much more about money uh, and profit than they do, you know, the more important things in life, let's say. It's crazy to think that that's actually a possibility and that people would actually do that to other human beings. But let's move on. Um, I I was looking through your Instagram the other day and I noticed you Mm -hmm. reposted part of Joaquin Phoenix's uh, Oscar speech on your page. Um, The part where he talks about um, equality between, you know, all genders, all races and all the creatures in the world, including animals, and how none of us creatures on the planet should dominate or exploit the others. Um, Why did you repost that? You know, his speech really resonated with me as someone who spent more than a decade working in media, hoping to amplify kind of the voice of the voiceless, uh, the most marginalized groups among us. He, He started his speech by expressing gratitude for having a career that gave him the opportunity to do the same thing. Now, whether that's true or not, um, in that speech and in many speeches, he touched, you know, he touches on social inequality, the cruelty of the food industry towards animals. I mean, something very few of us ever think about, whether we're vegan or not. Uh, systemic inequality and, and even kind of this cancel culture that we're living in online, right? And um, I've recently been taking acting workshops, um, studying acting, uh, which is also, like journalism, the study of the human condition. And You know, his speech came from a universal perspective, which I really respect, um, rather than an individual one. And it was very refreshing. I mean, I kind of admired how he asked viewers, and he took this kind of very, you know, public platform to, to ask viewers to sacrifice more individually, to make kind of a larger difference in the world. Um, and this is rare in Hollywood, right, where ego and validation and recognition and individuals Uh, really um, tend to kind of be somewhat self-absorbed. And, you know, he turned away, you know, attention from himself and kind of towards others, uh, especially marginalized groups. And whether it was sincere, which I think it was, or not, um, it came across as very authentic. And I kind of got a bit emotional because, you know, I I don't know. I felt so... I, I think... I think... 
he didn't even thank anyone who worked with him on on Joker. Mm. Some people might be like, in the context of Hollywood, how how rude. But he had, again, this bigger picture, right? This bigger perspective of, of kind of what we all as humans are facing. And rather than indulge his ego, uh, he warned us of of what happens when we fixate too much on ourselves and on our ego. And it was filled with kind of kind of universal truths about the challenges we face that I think a lot of people, you know, sweep under the rug and we're caught up with our own lives. And I'm not judging people, but um, I think it's, a, it's an important message that we don't hear that often. And, um, you know, let's also not forget that Joker was a very kind of divisive film. Like a lot of people argued that it glorified violence and it didn't really offer much new, you know, in terms of the conversation around that. And so... I don't know. I, you know, you could say that it's a bit ironic that he talks about like the social ills and, and but there's been a lot of kind of criticism, but also praise of him. And I think what resonated most with me to just answer your question succinctly is that I think when we're at our best or we are at our best, I should say, when we support each other. And he kind of echoed that sentiment, not when we cancel each other out and when we attach so much to our identities and we we want to kind of challenge each other for attention and for justice and dignity and freedom and all the things that we all deserve. And so, you know, he talked about helping each other grow and, and educating each other and getting a second chance. And I really respected that. I thought it was humble and it was refreshing. And um, yeah, it got so much attention, too. I guess, you know, mm -hmm. it was kind of divisive because a lot of people kind of get turned off when people talk about, you know, um, mm -hmm. Be, you know, people who are, you know, get, they get turned off by vegans, let's be honest, and they get turned off by people who are like too woke, right? There's like two camps in 100%. the world. Uh, but it got a lot of attention because at the end of the day, people are so fed up with these boring speeches at the Oscars, I think, you know, the ratings are 100%. like going down the drain. So yeah. they're looking for something more meaningful. And definitely he had uh, something really, um, you know, that was meaningful to say. Um, but, but let's talk about, um, so the deal of the century that Trump thought he could get away with. <laughs> We're shifting completely yeah. now. You've spent a lot of time covering the Middle East. You were, in fact, uh, uh -huh. nominated for an Emmy for uh, one of the shows that you did at Al Jazeera, I believe. That's true. Yeah. Um, so you have a lot of um, uh, you have quite a deep understanding of the history mm -hmm. of the region. You're also of Palestinian descent, though you grew up in Kuwait, mm -hmm. right? 100%. Yeah, well, I grew up in Egypt, but I'm a Kuwaiti citizen, and both my parents were born and raised in Palestine. Okay, and you've lived all around the world. You've lived in the States, yeah. so you're really a citizen of the world. But your your understanding of the region is uh, quite unique, I would say, in terms of your what your work has been and because of your heritage. Mm -hmm. So True. Um, I, I mean... Yeah. I think so. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's true. Everyone I, I thinks so. so. Um, okay. So, but what did you think when you heard about this so-called Swiss cheese state that Israel is offering <laughs> the Palestinians? What were your thoughts, especially as a as a journalist and as a a, a man of Palestinian descent? Um, you know, I, I laugh and I hate to laugh because obviously this is not a laughing matter. But I laugh just because of how how almost effective it was and how the media bought into it, including Arab media. I mean, let's be clear. This was not a peace plan. This was political theater masquerading as a kind of so-called peace plan. And I think timing really matters in life and in politics. And obviously it was a you know very welcome distraction from the kind of corruption charges that President Trump and President or Prime Minister Netanyahu were facing. I mean, the day that it was announced was literally the same day that um, Netanyahu was indicted for fraud, bribery, and breach of trust. Um, and 
I, I guess I think it's absurd to call this a peace plan, uh, especially when Palestinian voices were not included. Uh, you know, they were barred from the conversation. Uh, and I'm so exhausted by the world, uh, especially the normalization that we're seeing in the Arab world, but specifically the media, the way the media covers this. I think it's a good example of what I was speaking about earlier, this idea of objectivity, um, this idea of like giving two parties, Israel and Palestine, equal kind of, you know, uh, you know, like as if as if there's like only two sides to the story and as if they should have equal right to, to not right, but equal input uh, and framing them as, you know, it's it, it's it disregards the kind of David and Goliath um, paradigm and dynamic between Israel and Palestine. I mean, this peace plan, I don't want to repeat for your viewers or listeners, but it would recognize Israel's illegal settlements, which are illegal according to international law. Um, and, you know, uh, the plan not only tears up like previous realities and, and truths in international law, but it, it really points to a kind of new geopolitical reality in the Middle East. And, you know, Palestinians would get just 70% of the occupied West Bank and Israel can move immediately to annex more settlements. It's, it's, it's again, it's laughable. I mean, I almost don't want to, I don't want to even comment further, but, but, but the more important thing that I think I, I should say about this is that, you know, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that there's 450 thousand Israelis who live on 250 illegal Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. I mean, that's half a million people. And the kind of settlement planning and growth has, has grown three times since President Trump was elected. And so, you know, this plan is a plan for permanent occupation, for more apartheid policies. And, you know, there's even a section of the plan that involves like forcing the transfer of Israeli citizens who are Palestinian, uh, you know, ethnically. So Israeli citizens would be, you know, forced to move. And this was once, you know, deemed so extreme, you know, the kind of racist idea. Uh, and it's kind of getting the full endorsement of the U.S. So it's very, very, very disheartening. And what do you I, I mean forced to more. move? What do you mean forced to move? They would have to, that it, the plan itself, you know, I don't know if you know, but the plan would force like Palestinian citizens of Israel out of Israel proper and into this so-called Palestinian entity, right? Um, forced to move, meaning they would not be allowed to stay there, even though they're Israeli citizens. That's like one of the kind of odd things about this plan. Um, I didn't even know that. That, that. I don't think that was highlighted, you know, in the coverage. No, it wasn't. I mean, it was a very long, long, long line. I think that was also purposeful, right? Mm -hmm. You know, to to kind of... And, and one thing I'm going to say, if I may, I know I might not have too much time, but, you know, the coverage of the plan shows how mainstream news media outlets, particularly in America, but also in the Arab world, are kind of sensitized against any reference to Palestinian rights or dignity or international law. Um, you know, a lot of the early reports included both the word, the phrase peace plan and deal of the century, you know, phrases that you just used, you know, mm -hmm. it, you know, and, and journalists failed to kind of use quotation marks because that's all it is. You know, these are phrases that are coined by the administration, it, you know, and, and I think, you know, this draws attention to how important it is to contextualize. Um, stories and contextualize news and how we frame things is very important. And, you know, I don't mean to call out news organizations, but BBC, Reuters, The New York Times, AP, all of the mainstream organizations kind of fell into this trap that was kind of propagated by the Trump administration of, of kind of like, 
you know, uh, how can I put it? You know, there, there are internationally acknowledged rights, right, of Palestinians in the pre-1967 borders. And the way that it's phrased in the media is Palestinian claims or ambitions or hopes. No, this is something that decades ago has been established and codified into law, into international law. So why are we using these terms? You know, what is the purpose and the intention behind that? Um, you know, the New York Times also described the Jordan River Valley, which was occupied in 1967, as strategically important to Israel. Okay, but then why refer to Israel's kind of intended annexation of illegal settlements without mentioning the occupation or the 1967 borders? So, in, you know, in journalism, what we choose to include, what we choose to not include, how we call things, unfortunately, really matters in shaping people's perceptions. Um, and I, I want to also say, if I may, that you know, as a journalist who's tried to cover this story, it's it's been very challenging and things are shifting a little bit in America. But when things shift, people fight back, right? And so we've seen pro-Israel groups in the States and around the world consistently work to conflate Judaism with Israel. And so what they do is they delegitimize anybody, journalists in particular, who question or criticize the policies of the Israeli government as anti-Semitic. I know you know this. And so, um, you know, sadly, Arab journalists are falling for it too. I don't know if it's convenience, economic kind of geopolitical ties are now forming between, or solidifying, I should say, between Arab states and Israel. And uh, Arab media is failing to ask questions about the rights of refugees, of, you know, uh, people living in East Jerusalem and what kind of quote-unquote state Palestinians would have. Uh, Al Arabiya, NBC, so many Arab news outlets gave Jared Kushner uh, unchallenged kind of airtime on the day of the announcement, you know, and he explained his plan to Arab audiences. And, you know, I think um, I, I, I'm really sad to not see more of a kind of sophisticated conversation. It was it was all platitudes and it was offensive to anybody forget the fact that I'm Palestinian and a journalist. I think it's it, it's the way it was portrayed and presented by the media is offensive uh, to anybody who is uh, familiar with the very basics of the conflict, let alone anyone who's been on the ground there. I always tell people, um, if you want to, if you want clarity about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, just go there. Just go not to Israel only, but go to the West Bank, uh, go to Jerusalem, and you can feel it. You can't fake the feeling of of injustice and um, dehumanization. Well, you've made such a good point, especially uh, about how you know they've really mastered politicians have really mastered using uh, using the mm -hmm. media and using mm -hmm. language. I mean, if you're right. I never thought about that. If you call it the deal of the century, and of course journalists are going to call it that because that's the official name. But then you're kind of putting people's heads that it's this great, fantastic deal that's going to change you know the world forever. Um, so that's 100%. really interesting. But you also mentioned normalization, and that's what you're kind of talking about now. Do you feel like the era world, you know, they've always been kind of critical or they've always kind of supported their brothers, you know, in Palestine. But it feels now like they've kind of become complacent and um, everyone's kind of tired of this issue and, and they're kind of like sweeping it under the rug. Would you say that that's kind of true? And how do you see... Um, How do you see this playing out in the region um, if mm -hmm. the deal goes through 
how, how do you see it uh, playing out? Uh, Nadia, you use the word complacent, which is right, but I would go further. I would say complicit uh, in the occupation and in the dehumanization of Palestinians. And and I, I also would, you know, and I made a documentary for Vice on HBO, uh, the first ever kind of documentary about Israel and Palestine from the Palestinian perspective. And even though uh, I regret some of the choices that they made in terms of the finished product, um, what was very clear is that a majority of the youth and, and I think the Palestinian population in general see, uh, you know, the Palestinian Authority itself as complicit in occupation. So the normalization has existed uh, between Israel and Arab countries, as well as the Palestinian Authority, which is not just complicit, but benefits from the occupation, you know, financially. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, to kind of sum it up, I mean, I think that these developments we're talking about, about normalization, coincide with the announcement of this so-called deal, right? Um, Egypt, Jordan are, you know, the only Arab countries that actually have public diplomatic relations with Israel. But, um, you know, Israel, now Saudi citizens can travel, or sorry, Israeli citizens can travel to Saudi. Um, and I think vice versa, I'm not entirely sure. I don't want to, you know, give you misinformation. But Israel, you know, announced its participation in the expo in Dubai and the UAE in 2020. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the UAE just doesn't comment on the Israeli announcement. And there's a lot of ties behind the scenes in terms of, you know, economic and security coordination. Ambassadors of the UAE, of Bahrain, of Oman, uh, took part in the White House kind of unveiling ceremony of this so-called deal. Um, you know, we've seen so many ties. Uh, even with Morocco, there was a report that uh, kind of Israeli aerospace industries um, were purchased for, I think, $50 million to spy on desert, desert areas by the Moroccan government. Um, the Emirati foreign minister as well uh, has ties and has kind of, I don't know, it's, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself and, and kind of, you know, call out each specific country. But I think what we've seen... No, please, someone does have to do that. I mean, okay, people well. are not paying attention. That's what we were talking about earlier, right? No one's paying attention. Well, and as long as the dollars keep rolling in, you know, everyone's willing to kind of close their eyes on, you know, 100%. on humanity, basically, on their own species. It doesn't matter because, you know, unfortunately... I mean, yeah, it's, it's very complicated, right? Because this is and why I spoke about geopolitics, right? Because this deal, I think, did a lot of things that distracted away from the corruption that Netanyahu and Trump faced. But it also kind of highlighted a shifting uh, geopolitical reality in the Middle East, right? Uh, the normalization between Arab countries and Israel, which has been happening for some time, is kind of a desperate attempt at isolating Iran, right? And that speaks to other divisions in the region, right? You know, the Sunni Shia thing and, um, you know, how can I say this? Um, I think, I think it's a bit of a charade. I think, um, and it's not just cause I'm a Kuwaiti citizen, but in terms of lip service at the very least for the last five or 10 years, at least Arab leaders used to kind of give lip service and criticize Israel and, and kind of advocate for the rights and the dignity and, and you know, the, the justice that Palestinians deserve. And that stopped. You know, even the even the rhetoric has stopped. Mm. And um, I think that's partly because there are all these kind of normalization of ties. And um, it's it's shameful. And it's not just shameful um, because, you know, they're Arab brothers or what have you. But I think it's it's shameful because um, this is a conflict that I think 
is only going to get worse. And that's going to get worse for all parties involved, uh, including Palestinians, Israelis, and, and the neighboring countries. Um, I try to f- kind of hold on to hope in the sense that um, I think that, you know, uh, people that are so dehumanized and so uh, vilified and demonized and, and treated with such kind of injustice are never, ever going to just sit down and and take it, you know, and, and there are powers, unfortunately, that I mentioned, for example, the Palestinian Authority that benefit um, from from the reality of, of kind of the clo- the warming of ties as well between Arab states. And so we as individuals have traded our privacy for kind of convenience uh, when it comes to the internet and whatnot. And I think we're seeing Arab states trade kind of, um, make a similar trade in terms of their policies on Israel and Palestine. And it's, 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 de- it's depressing, it's disheartening, but I think there's still hope. So you mentioned that uh, since Trump has been... Uh president, the um, settlements have multiplied. Do you think if uh, we had a Bernie Sanders as, as president, things would be different? Things would change? Yeah, I think I think things would be different. I think things would change. I think people will who have supported Bernie, particularly people who care about this issue, might not be pleased with how quickly things would change. But I'll tell you this, things are shifting in America, in the media. I've worked uh, you know, for more than a decade for many U.S. mainstream organizations as well as others. And there used to be a time when you couldn't even kind of call a spade a spade. You couldn't criticize policies. The, the term occupied would never be used by any of the wire services. And, you know, that's shifted. And you're starting to see a lot of Jewish Americans. I mean, Bernie Sanders, again, the only Jewish American political uh, you know, kind of candidate running for president. And uh, you're seeing people within the media uh, take a stance. You're seeing people like Andrea Mitchell at MSNBC uh, frame what's happening in Israel and, and Palestine when, when you know, Arab members of the Isra- Israeli Knesset are kicked out. She tweets about, can you imagine if black members of, you know, the Black Caucus in Congress were kicked out? And And, you know, we're starting to see, I think, a little shift in terms of what is permissible in terms of criticizing Israel um, in a broader climate, of course, where the powers that are trying to limit that are, are actively working harder to actually make it illegal to boycott Israel or illegal to criticize Israel. And we've seen a lot of news stories in that context. But to answer your question, when it comes to Bernie Sanders, I think um, because he is Jewish, it almost affords him uh, the right to be critical without being deemed anti-Semitic, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a very powerful and very um, manipulative tool that a lot of people use to deflect any criticism of Israel. But it can't really be used on him, right? Because he can't be anti-Semitic if he is Jewish. You know? Actually, he can't they, be they've called Jews uh, anti-Semitic before, but course, I see what I see course. what you're saying. What what I mean is is self-loathing Jews, yeah. Yeah, of course, and you know, there's self-loathing everything. But 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 I think, um, I think uh, he believes that Israel and Palestinians can coexist. I think he he's been very vocal in a way that no other candidate has been in terms of advocating for the rights of Palestinians to live a life of dignity. I mean, even that very basic thing, like you wouldn't hear it out of the mouth of someone like Hillary Clinton or some of the other candidates running this this um, this cycle. So I I think I think yeah. 
I think that he will, and the way he speaks about Gaza, you know, um, even though I'm not convinced that it's 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 like indicative of of a huge change that would happen if he were president, just the the kind of humanistic approach and the fact that he's not that he's not so unwilling to recognize the 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 right for dignity and humanity for Palestinian people and that he has consistently referred to it is it's sad to say that that alone is a positive sign but it is So you're seeing some rays of light um, from the political side, in America at least, and you're seeing a little bit of uh, of hope also in the way the media is covering it. Does that mean you'll consider yeah. um, being working in the media in the U.S.? Is that something you're thinking about or are you considering a total shift of career? What, what are you doing? What are you working on? Good question. Um, I, I really think that I... Uh, will always be a storyteller. And I'm not trying to dodge the question. I think um, journalism is also evolving. The way in which we, the kind of parameters within which we can call something journalism is shifting. The way in which people consume, you know, news is shifting. And I think I'm at a point in my uh, life where, you know, I'm 35. I've been working for, again, like maybe almost 15 years uh, in the media. And I, I just think that if you think of how, I mean, I could flip the question on you. I don't know how many times, Nadia, do you read a news article or do you even watch a documentary and find that it really shifts your perspective or it, it really lingers with you for months and years in terms of something that you think about. And I, I know, I know the, what you're saying. I think people usually tend to gravitate towards the things that they already believe in, that rarely are people going to watch a documentary or if, if they th assume that it's going to be something they're going to disagree with, right? Exactly. And I think what's happened is, um, you know, I, I can't lie to you and say I'm not disillusioned with journalism. Uh, especially in this kind of post-Trump era, you know, you know, this fake news era, we often spend more time in media, for better or worse, focusing on what divides us, right? And this is really damaging for any chance of, of real change, of coalescing people to fight for change in a global way. And even though the internet uh, was supposed to be a global village, in many ways, we're living in these kind of online gated communities. And, you know, I remember back at the beginning of my career, You mentioned that I was nominated for an Emmy for my show, The Stream, on Al Jazeera. I mean, that was in the context of the Arab revolutions, right? this moment of hope and possibility. And social media was playing a real role in amplifying the voices of people who had been uh, silenced and stifled. And um, now social media platforms, whether purposely or not, I think maybe inadvertently have created kind of these online political cultures of maximal tribalism and, and infinite personalization and, you know, confirmation bias is a very real thing. You know, people silo themselves in self-made realities um, that validate their attachments to what they believe and to who they are, to their own identity. Um, and, you know, they, we all take part in kind of collective, you know, expressions of outrage based on our identities and our kind of quote-unquote tribal identities. And so, The post-truth era is kind of one in which people are, whether knowingly or not, searching for information, to your point, that kind of confirms their political or ideological beliefs uh, in this kind of digital dystopia that we're living in. And for me, I want to be effective. I have always wanted to, I wanted to, like, the reason I went into to journalism is because I believed that through telling people's stories, through amplifying the voices of the voiceless, that I would be able to 
to make a change in the world. And, you know, once I was on a panel at South by Southwest a few years ago, and I was speaking about this topic in the Middle East, and, and some guy stood up and he pointed at me and he was like, this guy, Ahmed Jabuddin, is an activist. He's not a journalist. <laughs> But that's how journalism got started, right? I mean, that was the initially why people became journalists. So it's kind of ironic. Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate that because for me, I, I thought it was laughable because, you know, out of all the things I've been called in my life, uh, I mean, being called an activist didn't offend me. I take yeah. kind of pride in it. But, you know, let's just quickly, like, the definition of an activist is a person who campaigns for some kind of social change. And if you define campaign, it's to work in an organized and effective way towards a goal. So I would argue that all journalists, whether they want to admit it or not, even the so-called objective ones, are activists. Exactly. You know? like, I, I think to reveal truths, to expose abuses of power, to promote understanding by providing context, as we spoke about earlier, uh, we, do, we, we tell stories in journalism to find constructive solutions to the problems we all face, right? And especially in this era of fake news where facts, unfortunately, don't really matter and where fear kind of dominates, like, I think we need to kind of, journalism needs to be a little bit redesigned with context in mind um, and with transparency and accountability. I think he mind. called you an, an activist because he, you're saying things that he doesn't agree with. Probably. Yeah, and he probably called me an activist because I was saying things that were persuasive, um, things that were based in fact, and things that were mm. because I was providing context and I was humanizing things that I think um, threatened his own sense of self and identity. And that's why you're great at what you do, by the way, Ahmed, is because you always provide context. And that's why, you know, we have you here today is because you're able to talk about these things in a way that is persuasive and that's um, engaging and that makes sense. I, pre I appreciate that. One last thing I'll say is just some questions. If, if there's time, I don't know how long this sure. is going to be, but for of the course. audience to listen is, you know, when it comes to media, when it comes to storytelling, like I, I definitely want to continue telling stories. I think I'm going to be doing it more in a performance uh, capacity than strictly in a journalism capacity. And the reason is because I've been asking myself questions of, you know, why is the media designed to tell stories that are motivated by, by fear? Why do we keep framing stories in these kind of familiar ways? You know, it's, it's, you know, why do we focus on politics rather than people? Um, is, you know, in a thing to be objective, the New York times, for example, and its coverage of Israel and Palestine, like we're trying to tell both sides of a story as if, any story only has two sides. Are we, are we actually concealing truths? And I think my biggest frustration with media is how often depth, nuance, and context are sacrificed in this kind of 24-hour news cycle for speed and short attention spans and simplicity. So to answer your question of what am I working on, I'm working on tackling those questions and finding ways to break through kind of this new kind of climate of this kind of changing media landscape. I applied to a fellowship actually at Stanford to do just that, which is to try and challenge some of the, try and tackle some of the challenges I should say that we face because I, I want to. What kind of fellowship? It's a fellowship, but it's a year long fellowship where you live at Stanford and you basically um, come up with ideas, actionable ideas to tackle some of the four major, well, they describe it as four major challenges facing journalism. They frame the four challenges as misinformation and disinformation, holding the powerful accountable, um, 
kind of strengthening local news and fighting bias, intolerance, and injustice. And a lot of those speak directly to my experience, especially recently, uh, and my frustration with with uh, journalism and media. And so, you know, I think um, we'll see. I don't know. I I <laughs> I I could do many things. I might find myself. Uh, I'm writing also a kind of screenplay. I'm taking acting classes. I was just in Mexico doing an acting workshop. And again, I learned that acting, much like journalism, is really the study of the human condition and my real passion. I, I love studying why we are the way we are, how we can change the way we are in order to change the world. So are you an actor now? <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I think I've always been an actor. Uh, maybe I've just been playing one character. Um, I think we all act. In life, and I know that's an easy excuse. Yeah, but, um, well, some no, of I, us, some of us act in life, but if it's time to yeah. actually act, you know, it's, it's a different story. <laughs> it's true. But when I'm on, when I, for example, when I'm hosting a TV show, right? Um, it's not me. I mean, it is me, but I'm kind of adopting a persona of sorts. And I think we all, to your point, adopt personas in different contexts. And so maybe I've been acting in the context of one kind of, uh, you know, one context, but I, I, I think that, um, I think film and scripted content, right? Because journalism is non-scripted, uh, film and kind of acting is, lives in the scripted world. I think it's a really powerful way, if you look back in history, of, of reaching people and, um, helping them shift and helping cha helping to challenge it's a really effective way to challenge people's perceptions and kind of assumptions and it can have a lasting effect on humanity whereas i think journalism is somewhat limiting in the sense like when do you read a news article and feel so inspired rarely mm -hmm. but everybody can reference three films that quote unquote change their life or change their perspective on something or you know what i mean yeah Uh, we keep going back to films. Some of us watch the same film a hundred times because there are lessons in films and it's, it's all based on, you know, the human condition. And again, that's, that's my passion. That's so interesting. And actually, that's exactly what you've done today is kind of uh, change the, the way that, you know, things can be perceived and shed, uh, you know, a new light on those things. So um, hopefully, hopefully, I really love what you're doing and I can't wait to see, to see what you do next. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. It really means a lot. I wish we could have seen you in person, though. Yeah, well, you know, I coming soon and I will make it a point to reach out and to drop by because um, for as much as I'm focusing on kind of all the stuff we talked about in the U.S., I think that there's also a role to play in the region in terms of shifting perceptions there. So Definitely. Hopefully, hopefully soon. You, you, we need you in the region. We need, we <laughs> we need all, your voice. We all need each other. Yeah. All right, Ahmed. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Nadia. It Good luck. Really my pleasure. Best of Thank luck. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media. Peace. See you soon. <laughs>